human beings seem to just be incapable of imagining how evil other human beings can be. It is, it's just one of those lessons that humanity has to learn over and over and over again. You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse from the cops? We've been exploring power, what it is, why it's become such a potent topic in our cultural moment, and especially we've been trying to understand what it would look like to steward power well as Christians. And we thought we were wrapping up this series, but in the last week, we have witnessed a stunning abuse of power taking place on the global stage, and we wanted to explore the way this is playing out in real time. So today we're circling back again with our friend and former Department of Homeland Security official Elizabeth Newman to talk about the way disinformation has been used as a weapon of power in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. All right. Well, welcome back to Everything Just Changed. And uh, I think I want to start this off by just pointing out what is probably obvious, but also very much worth mentioning. We're not a news podcast. Uh, we're a couple of pastors who are trying to understand the massive and seismic cultural change that is happening in the world around us, and that often intersects with uh, current events and breaking news stories. But we are not a news p- podcast, and we're not going to try to be. Um, we're making an exception this time to talk about uh, the invasion of Ukraine because this actually directly relates to our current mini miniseries on power in ways that are probably obvious as war as an exercise and expression of power, but even more specifically, our episode that we had when we had uh, Elizabeth Newman on to talk about the role of misinformation and disinformation and how information itself can be utilized, if not weaponized, to manipulate the levers of power in society. Before we jump into that, because we have Elizabeth Newman back with us, and we are excited to have her, even though, uh, Elizabeth, we really have to stop meeting under these circumstances. Um, and I don't know what that means, but it it just, like, we it would be great to talk to you uh, about really fun and positive things, but I feel like that's probably not very common in your line of work or your, your expertise, but... <laughs> yeah, I tend to get the phone calls when things aren't going well. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> part of the job, I'm sure. Uh, But before we jump into all this, first, I I think it's important to remind everyone that this is is not an occasion uh, for partisanship or punditry, opportunism, or really any form of armchair quarterbacking. It is really important for us to remember, even as we're having this conversation, that we're not just talking about concepts here. We're talking about people. And, And image bearers are dying right now because the flourishing of a democratic neighbor is a threat is, is is a threat to Putin's autocratic power. And so there's a certain gravity to to this conversation that is is really important for us to keep in mind um and and and, and also just very much reaffirms the whole point of why we're trying to do this which is to try to be good stewards of power and of the opportunity and the influence and the relationships that we have to love well our neighbor and honor and glorify God in the way that we steward power. So 
if you missed the episode that uh, that this is in, in many ways kind of a, a an unexpected part two for, uh, you'll find that linked in the show notes. But to refresh your memory, uh, Elizabeth Newman has one heck of a resume. Okay, she is a mom, a wife. Uh, she is the chief strategy offer for Mo- the Moonshot team, which is a uh, social enterprise working to end online harm. Uh, and really, she is very hyper focused on and a a a commonly resourced and and referenced expert in the areas of misinformation and disinformation. In part because she ha- is the former DHS Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention. Did I, did I get that right, Elizabeth? You did. Fantastic. So, and she also, it is worth mentioning, uh, got a 10 out of 10 with Room Raider for her, uh, for her interviewing as a, a national security uh, expert and uh, contributor for ABC. So, without further ado, Elizabeth, welcome back. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Brad. That's um, quite the intro. Um, the, it's uh, sad circumstances that we're getting to talk today, but it's always a pleasure to see you guys. Likewise. Yeah, great to great to talk with you again, and thanks for taking a break from um, ABC News to talk with us today. We appreciate that also. Um, so depending on when you're listening to this, we maybe should just clarify, we are recording this Thursday afternoon. Um, Russia has invaded Ukraine um, early this morning. So depending on when you're listening to this, things could be dramatically different from now. Uh, But to set the stage for our conversation, just in context, Elizabeth, can you um, just sort of summarize, I was going to say what's happened in the last 24 hours, but even maybe for the, the uh, benefit of somebody who is um, loosely following the news and aware of what's going on, maybe just summarize kind of the, the run up over the last couple of months, and then especially what's happened in the last 24 hours. What do we know? What do we not know yet? Sure. Um, and you're you're right to put that caveat on of what, what do we not know? The fog of war is fully in effect. Um, mm. I'm actively watching uh, some of the, the internal um, ABC news feeds um, of rep- from reporters on the ground, and you'll see one thing come in. This has happened, and then another reporter will come in. No, no, that's not happening. It is very much, um, uh, you know, it's war, it's chaos on the ground. So, um, getting the facts make it a little challenging. Um, the The run up here is that um, as far back as uh, over almost a year ago in April, you might remember that there was concerns that we saw. Uh, Russia starting to build up troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, they had done this before. They did this in 2014 uh, when they annexed Crimea and basically started to take over uh, through uh, some separatist movements, uh, sections of the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, they did it in 2008 in Georgia. So we have this pattern in practice of Putin uh, taking over countries or sections of countries And um, unfortunately, in the past, uh, the Western world did not respond in a unified way, kind of um, a couple of times said, you better not. And then he did. And everybody just kind of shrugged their shoulders and were like, "Mm, okay, Mm. moving on. Um, So what was different about the last year is that there were clear indications that Putin was trying to do something. There was a strong pushback uh, last 
year, uh, last spring, and um, there were some conversations. Russia kind of took a step back. Um, So everybody was like hopeful that maybe, you know, he's not actually going to pull any stunts. But that started to shift again in the fall, late fall, we started to see a buildup of troops. And by Christmas time, there were concerns that uh, we we might see an invasion as early as um, the Christmas holiday. Um, that clearly did not occur, but we saw more and more troops build up, not just on the part of um, Ukraine where uh, they had annexed Crimea or where those separatists were, but um, eventually covering all three sides. Um, they did a military exercise, supposedly, with uh, the country of Belarus, which had largely become a puppet of Putin's. Um, and, you know, there it, there was this great act of subterfuge over the last eight weeks where the West, uh, particularly the United States, was um, expressing concern and choosing to declassify intelligence that it had collected that they believed indicated that Russia intended to invade Ukraine. And Russia responding, oh, you're just uh, overblowing things. This is not, we're doing a military exercise. We have the right to stage our troops here. Over and over and over again, this tit for tat of the West, um, not just the United States, but the United Kingdom, other uh, G7 countries, uh, NATO allies saying, we are seeing this. We have indications that he intends to invade. And Russia um, repeatedly saying that that um, was made up and that we were uh, exaggerating. Um, So you flash forward to um, this week. Uh, We knew it was coming, but I don't know that any of us expected it to play out quite the way it did. Um, And uh, Monday, there was a speech that Putin gave for an hour, and it was... um, rambling. It, there wasn't a lot of logic. Uh, and quite frankly, p- people that are kind of experts in Putin were really concerned. Uh, they assess this is not a man that is fully um, connected to reality, um, which is hmm. when you're you're capable of launching a nuclear attack, that is terrifying. Um, so he laid this narrative out for why he believed that um, uh, Ukraine was a threat to Russia and um, set things in motion. And last night, it, it finally happened. Um, it was this weird, uh, surreal moment where if you were watching TV, um, and, and Brad, you and I were texting at one point, but you watched TV and you had um, the UN Security Council have, holding an emergency meeting and they're reading their diplomatic speeches and saying, you know, please take your troops back and de-escalate Russia. And then you had Putin all of a sudden, he's giving a speech, which turns out was pre-recorded, but announcing that they are moving in. And this is what he said. He said that he was beginning a special military operation, not an invasion, a special military operation in the Donbass in Eastern Ukraine. By the way, they are all over Ukraine. They're not just in the Donbass. Aimed at the demilitarization and denazification it's a new word, of Ukraine. He said Russia did not intend to occupy Ukraine, but called on Ukrainian soldiers to lay down their arms immediately and go home. He warned outside countries not to interfere. We'll come back to that. Um, 
pretty immediately. Uh, you could hear uh, from the various Western news um, reporters that were all over the country, you started to hear in the background uh, bombs being dropped. And sure enough, that got confirmed. Um, and it wasn't just in that uh, section that was closest to where the separatists were. It was all over. So Kiev, Kharkiv, uh, Lviv, um, and I'm not the best at pronouncing these names, but um, pretty much everywhere had some form of attack. And our, the, the DOD assessment as of this afternoon is that they launched 160 missiles, um, that multiple ground incursions occurred from the north, the east, and the south. The heaviest fighting, that's as of this afternoon, um, the heaviest fighting is in Kharkiv, and then uh, they have Russian forces just 60 miles of Kiev, um, and special forces at one point appear to have secured the key military airport just 20 miles of Kiev. This wow. is um, uh, the, a military airport, not the civilian airport, but I just got another update um, through ABC News channels that they, um, uh, Ukrainian officials believe that they're, at least they're stating that they have been able to retake that military airport. So there is hmm. active fighting underway. Uh, yeah. Ukraine is attempting to push back. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it started and um, it's unfolding and before us. Yeah. So you sort of, um, hinted at this, but it seems so far like what we've seen today, the invasion, everybody sort of was expecting this, but it seems like it's on a scale far larger than anybody really expected. Let me maybe ask a couple questions that might, these might be kind of stupid questions. I don't know. Do the Russian people want this or is this Putin himself? This is Putin's mm. war. The Russian people do not want this. And we actually have evidence of it. Um, we saw over 1,700 people have been arrested today for protesting in Russia. Um, the people that are Russian experts were like shocked that the Russians actually went out and protested because they know that they're going to get thrown in jail and possibly worse. Mm. Um, so this really... Uh, seems to have struck a nerve with the Russian people. They are they are not happy about this, and they are seeing through all of this narrative that Putin has been laying out. Really, more for a domestic audience than for a Western audience. It does seem that the um, the Russian people are seeing through it. Yeah. Okay. So that was the other question that I was going to ask. I mean, I know we're going to talk more specifically about kind of the, the misinformation aspect of the lead up to all of the of this, but like Putin's speeches what he's been saying over the last several months like help me understand like he's not saying things that are true he's putting out missions misinformation but like it doesn't seem remotely believable who what is what is he doing who is he talking to mm. who i don't i don't understand i don't get it <laughs> uh, well i think we saw from monday that maybe it's not completely as logical as we would have expected. Um, there, there might be a bit of, uh, he's reportedly been very isolated the last two years from his leadership team because of COVID. Um, you know, when you spend too much time with your own thoughts, sometimes you, you, you can like some, you know, misjudge the way uh, things are going to go. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he has, he has absolute power in that country right now. Yeah. Um, not saying that, he he couldn't be overthrown in some way, but it, it's not like that would be a simple thing. That that will take um, a lot of uh, 
economic pressure, a lot of, um, sadly, a lot of Russian servicemen coming home in body bags um, for uh, the, the domestic politics of is that inner circle that uh, he um, uses to to maintain the power controls in Russia, like that, that's going to take a lot to change him. So I do think at one point his disinformation was likely um, assumed that it could have an effect on the West. Because if you look at how the West reacted in 2008 and in 2014, largely we just kind of stood by and let him get away with it. And he has spent the last 10 years creating uh, weaknesses in the West. Um, You know, the 2016 election um, is what most people uh, think of when they think of Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but they have been at sowing seeds of discord in the United States, as well as, um, you know, the West. I mean, they've interfered with other people's elections, other people's civil society um, for quite some time. And I do wonder if he was hoping that by creating this very, I mean, if you look back at, at the statements that they would make day after day after day for like six months, um, it's a lot of masquerade and subterfuge. Um, And at times like made for TV or reality TV, um, uh, you know, war making, like it just, it like reeked of being so manufactured. Um, And I think he thought that it would, it would sell in other Mm. parts of the world. And the, the, if there's any bright silver lining out of this, it's that NATO is stronger today than it was a year ago, Mm. um, that Western allies for the first time in quite some time are pretty much in lockstep with one another. I mean, to see Germany turn off that Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that is not insignificant. Um, So he has actually had the opposite effect by by doing this. He's made the, the unification of the uh, the world against him much stronger. Wow. That doesn't mean that domestically we don't still have um, impacts of his dis- disinformation campaign, but uh, that we are going to have to deal with. But at least on the world stage, it has made the world uh, respond in, in a unified manner to him, which was really important. Domestically, I really do think that he thought, since he controls the media apparatus, um, in Russia and like a lot of media apparatus that are supposedly not associated with Russia, but actually are. Um, I think he thought that he could sell this story domestically. And I, I, a lot of experts are kind of surprised how quickly the Russian people sought through this. So hmm. maybe his support is, is weaker than we thought. Yeah. So given that, <laughs> the confusion there and that you don't, you know, foresee the future, uh, as far as you can tell from your experience and conversations with other national security colleagues, what is his end game here? What is he trying to do? And why is it so hard for us to understand his mindset? Uh, I think one of the toughest things for us is we are Western and he is not. Um, mm. So that's part one is, uh, uh, the way that we have been raised and the way that we think, I mean, it's not just West, it's like American, like we're Americans. And and mm-hmm. when you travel and, and engage with any other country, um, we, we are just very unique in how we filter the world. Um, so that's part one. Part two is human 
beings seem to just be incapable of imagining how evil other human beings can be. And, um, it is, it is, it's just one of those lessons that humanity has to learn over and over and over again. We tend to want to afford, uh, our opponents like some benefit of the doubt and don't get me wrong. Being gracious is an important aspect of our faith, but, um, uh, you know, Christ called us to be, uh, you know, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And part of being wise in this context is if somebody has a pattern and practice of acting a certain way, you shouldn't assume that he's not going to act the same way, even though he's telling you something else, right? Like he hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt at this point. <laughs> and so, yeah. so that, um, that I find really fascinating in all of the commentary leading up to this moment where people are like, oh, he's just bluffing. Oh, uh, you know, he is, um, he's not really going to invade it, You're like, you're, you're misunderstanding the level of evil that he is capable of. Um, and the third piece, you know, in terms of like what his end game is, that's really difficult. I've been following people who have studied Putin and I've heard a couple of different assessments, like the best case scenario and what we're hearing from the Pentagon is that it appears that he is trying to decapitate the Ukrainian government, um, basically take out the existing leadership, install his own puppets um, and and kind of make them the way that Belarus is so that, mm. you know, mm-hmm. you can be your own Ukrainian people and country, but I control you. You are in my, what they call the sphere of influence. Um, I suppose that is the best of the scenarios. It's, it's not, uh, it's still illegal. It's still (laughs) inappropriate um, and lives are going to be lost in the process, but the other potential scenarios get much darker and um, include, um, you know, not just uh, putting in your own puppet government, but using this as a launching pad to taking over other, countries and truly rebuilding what he told us he wanted to do on Monday was rebuild the Russian empire, not the USSR, the, the, like going back to like, you know, 1900, that's what we're talking about here. Um, so that's where his mindset, if he's not really connected to reality as, as grounded as he used to be, that, that becomes really concerning. You have to believe him when he says it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, correct my memory on this, uh, you know, uh, this history and, and background and context, but wasn't it in 2014 that Ukraine had a revolution, a democratic revolution and ousted, uh, basically the Putin puppets, like how I, I, again, to your point of like trying to imagine this mindset, if he, if that already didn't work once, is there a reasonable like can he really expect that to be effective again or like does that just make the the darker scenarios you're describing more like their chances of being the 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 end goal actually higher i hadn't thought about that brad and that um yeah it sadly that does oh. make it um likely that he has other aims that this is i mean look when you look back at his positioning and posturing you start to realize he's been playing much like China does. He's been playing the long game and we look at, you know, 
each move on the chessboard in, in isolation, as opposed to like yeah. scanning out and seeing the entire chessboard. And we are now, that's not to say there are plenty of experts in the U.S. government national security apparatus that, that have been seeing this full thing. I, I mean more in the context of the way that we um, average American citizens look at things and consumer news and, and we just yeah, kind we of have a see very short term memory. Yes, we yeah. do. That makes sense. Well, let's 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 talk about that long game actually a little bit because this this is the the part that really connects with what we talked with you about in January. And um, I want to read just kind of to 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 set this uh, a, t- a tweet from friend of the pod Ian Harbor, who's also a marketing and Web three uh, kind of influencer thought leader on online. He he tweeted out this morning that. Um, one thing that scares me right now is knowing how Russia manipulated algorithms to divide our country during our election. That was the primer. You better believe they're putting that into play right now for propaganda about this war. Be ready for misinformation like you've never seen before. Those were tests and they were successful. They know algorithms are America's weakness and they may not be able to defeat us militarily, but they know they can manipulate us with our screens. I mean, I, I I haven't seen anybody like hit the nail on the head more cleanly and squarely than that. And so knowing and considering, you know, the context of that tweet, for example, like last year's report that the top 10 quote unquote Christian Facebook pages or groups were created, managed by Russian troll farms to produce political propaganda. And it was all intended to distract and divide us and inflame American culture wars. So I guess let me let me get to the question here. How, how is is what we're watching unfold related to what you discussed with us about that disinformation uh, dynamic that we are really just barely starting to kind of become more aware of? What is what is going on with that? How does this relate? Uh, it's directly related. Um, when I was serving in the government, uh, the results and the analysis of how Russia had interfered in the 2016 election were coming to light. And um, we would often have conversations trying to understand what the end game was, because the end game was mm. not necessarily to pick one president over the other, though by 2020, um, the intelligence community did assess that Putin uh, preferred Trump over uh, uh, Biden. But um, the that really is like, that's just kind of almost a sideshow and a distraction from what his actual aim is. And what the intelligence community tells us is that the goal is to so wreak havoc in our society um, that we are not capable of having the resolve to Mm. stand up to whatever else he wants to do. And so Mm. we would think about that and look at the world stage and look what, you know, he was started to, he had an incursion into Syria that we were not happy with. And we were watching that and going, is this it? Is this the end game? Is he like moving into Syria and then planning on doing something else with uh, Iraq or Iran? Um, you know, and you're like, no. And then you, you would, you just, we just kept watching, trying to figure out like, yeah. he's doing this for a reason. There is a plan here. Um, I, I don't think it's uh, an accident that it's happening in 2022 at this moment. Um, and there are a variety of reasons. It's not just one particular thing. Um, 
but whether you had uh, a President Biden or a President Trump, uh, he was going to execute this action. Um, and it was in part because we have done such a marvelous job of um, dividing ourselves as a country um, that that he could see we were we are weak. We he mm. it worked. What he planted and seeded ten years ago, uh, it. It, he's patient and it's taken its time. And we are, you know, we are now more focused on um, arguing with each other over CRT in schools and masks. And, you know, I'm not, and I'm not saying that there aren't worthy debates to have over those topics, but we do it in such a way that is so vicious and so, um, you know, angry filled uh, that, and that we are, we as a country have just become navel gazers. We, we, it's almost like what? There's another yeah. world out there. There's, there's responsibilities that we have in, in being like one of the, the largest economies in the world and, and being blessed the way that we are. Like we, we no longer think about the, that um, mantle of responsibility that we as a country have. We are just so much more interested in tearing each other apart. You know, it's interesting hearing you use the word resolve because where I where I was thinking about the implications of that was very much around like unity, um, and you know, with the divisiveness. But resolve is, and I think includes that uh, that aspect of unity. But it also has to do with like an emotional resource, um, and ang- that anxiety is just going to drain. And if you are exhausted, like how do you, how can we? have the emotional resources to continue to care about something that's happening a world away when we are so exhausted and drained by the nonstop just uh, uh, hypervigilance that's created by our culture wars. And so that's just an interesting, that's a facet or an uh, aspect of it that I hadn't connected the dots on for. Okay. So I I actually want to add like another layer to that because, um, Brett, as you know, like I've had this like thing that I've been trying to figure out for a while about how um, post culture war, uh, post Cold War, like American yeah. culture um, radically shifted. Yeah, and I actually read something this morning that reminded me of this. But th- there was a clear sense during the Cold War that this was a moral issue. That that there was a clear sense of right and wrong. This isn't really. This isn't just about. Uh, you know, the relative merits of um, different forms of government or different, different economic, you know, patterns or whatever. Um, and, and American culture has just kind of gone in this relativistic direction. And frankly, I mean, the church is moving in that, in that direction too. And so, I, I mean, I know, I know, um, you said earlier, Elizabeth, we have a hard time imagining how evil people can actually be. And I just wonder how much that whole smorgasbord of, eh, they're doing their thing, we're doing our thing, everybody kind of just stick to yourself is playing into something really awful that's actually playing out uh, in real time now. I, I struggle um, with... I'm going to draw on kind of my own experience um, in serving uh, in the Trump administration. Um, my 
proclivity is to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't, I don't know what you think inside your brain. I, I, um, see your actions, but there might be a lot of reasons why I could explain your actions one way versus the other. Um, I, I learned, um, or I was convicted at some point during my, um, whatever call my sanctification journey, but, um, I was very quick to judge people. And so, uh, the, the Holy spirit really convicted me that I, I needed to, um, change that mindset. And, um, the, the challenge with that, I, I discovered in the last four or five years is that there are times when people do wrong things, um, sinful things, uh, evil, I mean, put whatever framing you want. Um, they have, done something wrong and um you you can become complicit in that if you cannot um be able to see it for what it is now the reason behind why they did the wrong thing you know might vary in terms of um how we would uh frame that in terms of responsibility right like a mistake Uh, when I'm dealing with my children, intent matters a lot, right? You make a mistake, you broke something on accident. I'm going to treat that differently than if you like intentionally broke your uh, sister's doll because you're mad at her, right? Like intent matters. Um, But you still have responsibility for the mistake. And um, somewhere along the way, uh, we, we have ceased to being able to identify the mistakes of our own side. Um, Mm. We give passes to those that are part of our tribe or our in-group, whatever you want to call it. Um, And we vilify if you are in the out-group, if you are the other, uh, the them, um, and um, no grace there. And and I, I can't even call it grace. It's like a blind eye to, um, to the evil of your, of your own group. And so somewhere in the midst of all of that, um, you know, I, I think it's, there's a need for believers to, um, ask the Lord for removing those blinders to be able to see our, our own, you know, uh, mistakes and, and our own, um, you know, teams, uh, flaws and foibles. And, um, and that, and that, that doesn't mean that you have to, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you, um, have to no longer be a part of that team. It just means we're human beings and we make mistakes. Um, but let's own it. Let's own when our side doesn't do something well. Um, and then also like when we're seeing evil in the other side, I, I do think it's important that we offer grace and that we don't fully understand what is happening, you know, why they might have made that mistake or why, um, especially if you're talking about in the context of domestic politics, the narrative that you are being told about that evil person over there, it's probably not accurate information. Um, so finding other sources of information to help you better understand why they did what they did. Um, and and then as it applies to, you know, the things that... that um, we're giving people passes for, you know, the, the, and this is, you guys have covered this with um, some of your other podcasts. It's like there, there is this weird um, human phenomenon that like institutions and people with significant power um, 
like for some reason we like we just don't call out the evil when it's purely evil like it's like we keep mm. giving them passes and um well, and even more than that actually it, it, it there's some it, it almost feels like the uh mm. our, the trajectory of where we give grace versus offer judgment yeah. has been turned upside down yes right we, we're actually like because, uh, because Bryce, one of the things I know that we've processed about this, especially in the post Cold War area, is that, like, without the uh, an external catalytic enemy or evil, uh, we end up kind of turning in on ourselves, and we look for uh, the villain in our neighbor instead. Right, right. I mean, that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting. It's like there was this very clear sense during the Cold War of like, uh, of not just. Our, uh, patriotism, but like right and wrong. And there was a moral aspect to that fight. And, and once the USSR fell, it was like, we didn't grab, we didn't like come to terms with the, uh, the end of the cold war and sort of just started turning that vitriol uh, against the other side of the political spectrum domestically. Yeah. Well, and, and, and what's really hard about that, this point actually is, cause I think that's accurate. There were also remarkable downsides to that dynamic during the cold war, because the church in many ways, uh, kind of got on the, the patriotic bandwagon yes. because this wasn't yes. just a, uh, a fight between America and Russia or the Soviet union. It was a fight between, uh, theists and atheists. And that that dynamic is part of what has like compromised our ability to differentiate our religion and our politics right now. And so with with that consequence, it's like, wow, there, there's a part of me that's like, hey, at least we have a bad guy that's not our like out there that's actually out there again. <laughs> Maybe that'll help us, you know, unite either as a country or and I'm like, wait a minute, that got us into the frying pan uh, post Cold War, too. So I. I feel so conflicted um, because like, you know, I, I think I was texting with you, Elizabeth, uh, last night about how like, this is one of the few like events that I, I, like my first reaction is, wow, there is so much clarity here. The answer here is very obvious. It's black and white. This is just categorically evil, wicked and wrong. And there's no like nuance that's going to make this better. And yet <laughs> we see a lot of, very strange nuance happening, uh, both in in mainstream media as well as in social media, uh, and so I think I think I think a good way to summarize what we, this part of what we've been talking about is like there is something about our discernment uh, that is broken. Yes, um, and 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 very much that very much feels related to the distrust of in, in institutions that is both not only Putin's fault, but is actually a goal and an aim of uh, flooding the zone uh, with shit as uh, was, is that what uh, Bannon yeah, would say, uh, which is a, an explicit Putin KGB Russian disinformation tactic to just overwhelm people with, with just cheap or bad, like, like the, basically the, the information equivalent of, of fast food and empty calories such that, Nobody really feels like they can like put their finger on or say this is actually true or this is the right thing because there's so many different options out there and they're all feel of equal urgency and priority. It's you can't sort through them. 
And so, okay, here's the question. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the question with this. Uh, With the hindsight of the last 24 hours, what, what can you see about all of that, those, those disinformation and misinformation um, tactics, campaigns, et cetera, are, is this connecting dots for you in terms of how those things might have been to, to what you said earlier about this has actually been the long game. This is the thing that, uh, th- that those things have been leading up to and that have been prepping the battlefield for, so to speak. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely is. And it's, I, I like the framing that you laid out with the, the comparing the way that the country operated during the cold war even if you just trace um, uh, the rise of domestic terrorism, it, it surges during the 90s after the Cold War has fallen. 9-11 happens, huge unity. Now, uh, also, wow. also some you know not so great things in terms of um, uh, demonizing uh, Muslims, but, but as a country, there's a lot of unification um, and we have an external mm. enemy that we're unified to defeat that starts to fall apart um, in the the second term of uh, you know, the Bush administration, in part because we went into Iraq, and it, I think history has shown that that probably was not um, a good idea. Um, but the uh, and and that started to fray the unity and trust and trust. Yeah, um, sure. And then you have the financial crisis in 2008. And most people Mm. looking at the moment that we're in now, tie it back to the financial crisis causing significant uncertainty um, that leads people to gravitate towards tribes. Um, Tribes, including, by the way, militia, like a rise in belonging to violent extremist groups. Um, Yeah. Uh, shortly, shortly after that crisis is manufactured, and there is a historical trend of you know having economic crisis uh, creating tremendous uncertainty, and then an increase in violent extremist movements, um, not just domestically wow. but around the world. Um, so, so some of this, um, to your point, like the the mistrust in institutions, the anger um, leading to to increased tribalism. Um, not necessarily something that Putin seeded, but he certainly took advantage of the moment that we found ourselves in the early uh, 2010s and uh, certainly was laying groundwork um, during Obama's second uh, second term. And um, and then you you started to see, um, uh, you know, the that groundwork come to fruition in the 2016 election cycle. Um, what I am so frustrated by, go ahead. Just, just to, just to uh, point out, like what you just went through was actually, I, you might've covered every single base of the list of grievances that president, then candidate Trump explicitly referenced as, mm. as like, these are the problems. And he's, he was tapping into those things. That's, I have not made that connection before. That is, that is, I'm kind of, I'm speechless. Yeah, that's, that's insane. You know, it's funny when I talk to like family members and, um, you know, over the holidays, that kind of stuff, um, and connect dots for them about like, you know, Russia did this during the 2016 election. They're like, what? 
that's horrible. The Russians shouldn't do that to us. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it is horrible. But that, like that, <laughs> that found that was like we discovered that in 2017. It's been it's been like four years. Did you did you not know that? No, had no idea. But if you flooded the zone, then you ha, that's you're not gonna you're yeah. not gonna notice it. Yeah. So I, oh. there is this aspect of um, <laughs> my my um, family member. I won't say exactly who it was like. It, why why haven't they called a press conference and like explained this? And I'm like, they did during the Trump administration. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, yes. Like yeah. we're under attack. It's just yeah. different than what it used to be. It's like, it's, but it is still, it, it's still a, an attack. It's literally the same playbook, just updated for 21st century tools and social media and, mm. um, you know, basically doing it via the internet instead of what they were doing uh, mm. in, this, in the 50s and 60s and 70s through paper means. It's like the soft, yeah, it's like the soft power equivalent of cyber warfare. It's this not physical, not embodied thing, but it's kind of like diplomatic in a sense, because it's just pushing information and propaganda, but it's not like, it's not a direct attack. It's just, it's this indirect attempt to influence. And that is, gosh, yeah, I don't even, I, I kind of have a, a, this is like less a, uh, well, I mean, it's connect, it's very much connected to what we're talking about. One thing I have not heard anybody uh, talk about yet that I'm very curious what you think about is with everything going on with all of this, you you mentioned earlier that Putin, like China, has the long game far more in mind than we, anyone in the West, and especially Americans, do. Uh, how how concerned should we be about this being not necessarily primarily, but also being functioning as a misdirection uh, that distracts further from aggression? between China toward Taiwan. Yes. Um, I, I am very concerned about that. I'm others I know in the national security community are, are very concerned. Um, at a minimum, we see that, uh, China is watching and watching how the world handles this and they will learn from it and apply it to whatever their end game is for Taiwan. Um, but, uh, the, the more devious what you were suggesting might be at play is that maybe Putin and Xi are in, in cahoots and like he's doing this over here so that he, he you know, Xi can get away with whatever he wants to in Taiwan and um, maybe maybe we won't pick up on it. I I, I feel like um, it's way early to say anything about that. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I know, yeah, I, yeah. I think yeah. it's slightly implausible. Um in that uh, China's understanding and of us, I mean, they, their espionage is top notch. They understand our capabilities and intentions, and they are very well aware that while we might have some stuff going on in NATO, like it's a completely different command system that is watching that part of the world. Uh, mm. We have allies with capabilities in that part of the world, you know, so it's, Yes, there might be domestic um, pressure to not end up with, uh, you know, engaged in two parts of the world, but but it's not that we wouldn't have the capability to handle it. Okay, that's that is actually 
very encouraging. So that's maybe yes. some of the best news we've <laughs> heard today. A little bit yeah, of yeah. bright news, right? Yeah, yeah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so Elizabeth, um, as we guess, just kind of start to wrap up a little bit, I mean, in addition to the uh, incredible importance and obvious importance of praying for peace, what, if anything, can Christians in the U.S. do about this crisis now? Um, well, let's not um, pass by that too quickly. Like prayer matters. Um, yeah. This is evil. This is evil at work, and I think we need to to understand that. And I love I love the way you framed it, Brad. Like this is one of those moments that is really clear. Yes, there are some, you know, wonky foreign policy arguments going back to well, if we had done this thirty years ago, maybe we wouldn't be dealing with this. And and yeah, fine. Historians can play that game. Sure. Um, it doesn't change the fact that. This was unprovoked, and this is going to lead to death. And mm-hmm. and he didn't have to do that. Um, so the evil there um, needs to be prayed against. It's demonic. It, it it and and there we know we know from scripture. Like and it's kind of weird in our Western mindset to think of it this way, but we know that um, there is warfare that we cannot see. That's yeah, going on. Right? And this, powers. Yeah. Exactly. And so praying matters. And um, I'm sure you guys have seen some of these, the footage, but um, I just, I broke down when I, they were interviewing mom and she had mm. uh, a son, you know, a year younger than my son and a daughter a year younger than my daughter. And she was putting on a brave face and, she, and she even told the reporter, like, I, I have to be brave for them. Um, mm. There are other scenes of a uh, father saying goodbye to their kids because the the kid and, and the mother are fleeing to Poland and he's staying wow. behind to fight. Um, we we've read about this. We really have not seen this in our lifetime, and it is heartbreaking. Um, and and I, it is when we have so much information, it is easy to become overwhelmed. And I'm not saying you have to sit there and you know saturate your entire day with it, but pausing. And, and whether it's watching a video or, or trying to imagine putting yourself in, in those shoes and letting your heart pour out before the Lord, um, I, I do think that matters. Um, Absolutely. Other, other, you know, tangible things that we can do, uh, there are efforts to um, support Poland and Hungary who have agreed to accept refugees. Um, I have to say it's shocking that Hungary is being so warmly receptive. Um, So that in and of itself is a huge answer to prayer. Um, The US um, AID, which is like the US aid um, to the the world has already committed to provide resources to Poland and Hungary to help them. So that's good news. Um, But there will be a a strong surge of NGOs that are going to be providing support. So making charitable contributions to the NGOs that you trust. uh, usually there's a Red Cross, there's a World Relief, there's World Vision, um, uh, Samaritan's Purse. A lot of these uh, will do, end up doing support in some way to, to help the refugee population. Um, I personally, um, though I, I can appreciate uh, there might be different policy positions on this, I personally think that the U.S. government um, could uh, offer what's called temporary protective status um, to those Ukrainians that are here in the United States mm. and can't return home. Um, it gives them a legal status to stay beyond whatever their visa 
uh, might have authorized. Um, so if, if you agree with that, you could reach out to your congressman and urge um, that TPS uh, be extended to uh, Ukrainians here in the United States. Um, and then, you know, look for, uh, there are still churches that are offering shelter in Ukraine to the Ukrainian people. And yes. it might be a little difficult to, to figure out how to support them. But I, I imagine that some of these NGOs that I mentioned will find ways to connect and provide the support um, that they need. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of thing that tends to draw a lot of attention in the short term, but the tail here is going to be quite long. Um, so uh, if there's an opportunity for those refugees to eventually, um, hopefully they get to go home, that would be the first goal. But if there's an, um, a situation where they get to come to the United States and resettle, um, you know, being welcoming and helping your local refugee service agency is another great way uh, to, to contribute. That is incredible. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. I, I, you know, when I reached out to you, I was, I don't know that I had like a, this is how I know this will be helpful for, for people and for us. Um, I just was like, you know, what's the, 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 the meme or the gif with the, you know, somebody's looking off into the distance and all the equations are just flashing across the screen. I'm just like, this feels so connected to me. And I'm just like, I want to know what she thinks about this. But I think if, if I had to summarize the, the benefit and the good uh, of just processing this with you, it's very much that you're offering a, a non-anxious clarifying perspective that yes, connects some very important dots, but not for the sake of like, like laying blame or like trying to like point fingers at what screwed up. Like this is so that we understand how to go forward. And and I think you have distilled some really important perspective and principles that actually now when I read the news and and are and I'm following this, I think it's going to be a lot easier to, to be able to like, not that you can see behind all, you know, whatever disinformation, but it, it feels like it has a little bit less of a hold on, on me now. And so, um, I think that's my hope that for, you know, our, our listeners, we really hope that this has been helpful toward that end for you as well. Um, and gives us some things where we can absolutely be in prayer about and for, and, and especially just reiterate what you said about this is going to get a lot of attention in the short run and needs to stay on our radar and it needs to be something that we are continually praying for because that's not just a thoughts and prayers trite silver lining bs that's actually the very power of god in play so um thank you so much elizabeth we really appreciate it yeah thank you it's great to talk with you thank you for having me you guys and i appreciate the ministry that you are doing and, and talking about these important topics So what changed for you after listening to this conversation? Let us know in our Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes below. Thanks for joining us today. We thought we were wrapping up the series on power, but we've got a couple more episodes that we're going to bring you over the next couple of weeks. We'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have as you are thinking about power? What have we missed? Let us know on our Facebook group. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards. We'll talk to you again next week right here on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.